So welcome to Arnold Fini and this screening of films by Basim Magdi, which accompanies the current exhibition, um, The Stars Were Aligned for a Century of New Beginnings. And hopefully everyone's had a chance to see the exhibition. If not, it's on for a while longer, so um, do come and have a look. Um, Basim is also really interested in your thoughts about the work, and um, we're inviting responses with the hashtag Dear Basim. So um, do let us know what you think as well. Um, we're very happy this evening to um, welcome Tara Judah here, who has selected and it will introduce um, five films that we'll see by Basim Magdi. Um, and Tara is director of 20th Century Flicks, which is on Christmas Steps. And um, it's an incredibly incredible library of around um, over 19,000 thousand DVDs. Um, Tara is also a writer, curator, critic and broadcaster. Um, she's online editor for Cinema Rediscovered and host of the film podcast Cinema Blind Spot. Um, she's trustee on the board of directors at the Curzon Cinema in Clevedon and is a regular contributor to Monocle's 24 Art Review and the Cinema Show, Census of Cinema and Desist Film. <laughs> She's described watching Basim Magdi's films as like unlocking the trapdoor of one's own subconscious and letting a kaleidoscope of dreamlike treasures flutter off the screen into the auditorium, a space where poetry, fiction, and someone's version of the truth can flourish. Tara has selected five films this evening that have been made between 2009 and 2014, and she's titled the screening A Number of Non-Essential Ideas for Resisting Understanding in the Work of Basim Magdi and the World. So <laughs> I'll hand over to Tara and she can tell us a bit more about that. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Um, yes, good evening, everyone. And uh, I have to laugh when I hear the title that I gave to the screening this evening um, and explain that it is a parody of a title of one of Basim's works, which is 13 Essential Rules for Understanding the World, which is up in the top gallery uh, if you haven't seen it. And it's a, a brilliant film. It's not in this selection. But the reason for the title um, is, is because a number of non-essential ideas for resisting understanding in the work of Basim Magdi is really what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, and I'd like to thank both Lucy um, and the Arnolfini generally, and also Basim for giving me quite a lot of freedom in what I decided to talk about. And Basim did find it very hilarious that I titled my film this, especially because I included And the World. Uh, the reason for that being that it's quite ambitious to suggest that I have any number of things for understanding or resisting understanding anything in the world, but also echoes uh, one of the rules in his Essential Rules film, which is never assume or pretend to understand anything. And that's about as good a place to begin and where we may as well end up at the end, but where sh we should start. So what I'm going to talk about this evening is uh, the works that we're going to see tonight, but also the role of the spectator um, as it pertains to Basim's work. And he's obviously really interested in people's responses, um, which Lucy alluded to with the Dear Basim hashtag, and also really interested in how people engage with his work. So it's about thinking about the act of viewing and looking. His titles are very obfuscating, and I think that that can make the works appear difficult to access at first. But that's only if we think about the works as something through which to make meaning. And I'd really like to suggest tonight that that is not a useful way to consider Basim's films um, and that we should think about affect first and foremost. 
In a short blog piece that I wrote for the Arnolfini, I suggested that Bassam's process of pickling film is also one of picking, pickling its audience. Um, and that has to do with the way that the images, which are uniquely and beautifully preserved through the process, offer us a kind of swimming immersion. So if we can think about this auditorium space as our kind of brine to be pickled in tonight, um, that might help us to understand the comprehensive pickle that understanding his works puts us in. So if you missed his um, artist talk here last month, or if you're not sure about the process of pickling that he talked about, it is how he he processes the photochemical film um, through experimenting with different chemicals, through household chemicals and dishwashing materials, um, different chemicals, but also different durations. And he had a really scientific approach to that in that he would collect the data uh, from the different ways in which he experimented with the film chemical process and then kind of tweak it from there to get exact results. And there's something about a scientific approach that he's been interested in and that I think comes through in some of his earlier films especially this sort of scientific approach to an artistic result. So what the process does is it acts as a kind of intervention. There are structured stages in the journey from image of capturing the image of the photochemical film to the representation of that image and we can think about them as the basis of just capturing an image or an object or something as it exists in space and time then processing that material, creating an indexical trace in the process in the processing process so that we have something that ties us to that object that originally existed. And then we can see it as presenting it for an audience to or a viewer to look at. And then we have your experience of that work. So Bassam's pickling is a kind of intervention that happens to this sort of idea of a, a correct process or a, a, a way of, 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 I guess, traditionally processing films for a specific result. So at that intervention, it alters the image, but it also, it kind of gives us a different sort of immersion because what we're seeing is something entirely different. And it gives us the opportunity to really relish or become the relish for these images. I think the experience puts us in a difficult position in terms of understanding the relationship to the original object that did exist once in time and space because it is an approach. And the approach, um, I think, is really useful for experiencing his work, even though not everything we will see tonight is actually photochemically pickled. So if we just think about this pickling process as one the way in which some of the images have been created, but also as an approach to intervening in art. So it disrupts the chain of events, which stops us from making meaning and stops us from constructing a narrative or understanding or reading the work, and it intervenes in comprehension. This act of intervention is also an act of emancipation. Bassam is freeing us from a prescribed reading of the work. He allows us to participate to be active, to be engaged, to be creative in our comprehension, in, in the affect that we have and the response to the works. And so what I'm going to do is not tell you about what the films mean, but maybe offer some tools with which to think about how they mean. The first is to do with text. 
And returning then to the titles, this idea of obfuscating titles in the film, it's not just those that are playfully and willfully confusing. I think that it's also his use of on-screen text and voiceover narration. So we have a really strong presence of language in the work. Um, of the five films tonight, they don't all have language or text present. There's only two, but all of the ones that you see in the exhibition do. So the first film is kind of a, a bridge between what you've seen in the galleries and then some of his older works, because there's also a little bit of a kind of temporal excursion to the past. Um, so the first film, The Many Colours of the Sky Radiate Forgetfulness, uses text on screen. And the language itself is a kind of jarring intervention into the cinematic or film form, where we consider film to be the combination of images and sounds in motion, text and language completely change our perception of what we see and hear. The writing doesn't always stand in for the absence of sound, uh, and I think that it's interesting to think about the kind of trajectory of cinema. Um, silent cinema had sound, even if it didn't necessarily have audible dialogue. Um, and if anyone has questions about silent cinema, Dr. Peter Welsh can answer them in the bar later, as he is an expert in that field. Um, but what it did was that it always, film has always displayed the advantages of the visual arts. And so how we can communicate without words is through gesture, framing, focus, action, editing, um, and the process obviously of, of the filmic result in the end of, of what's done to it in the photochemical process. But the text and narration in Bassam's film doesn't give us information that's missing either. So he adds this element, but it's not to fill in a gap um, and it's not to stand in for something that you don't see. So if it's not something that's absent, then we have to think about what the text does. And what it does is it adds another layer of texture and it shows us the surface of the screen. It reveals that there are many layers within the image, but it also kind of tells us that maybe the image is flat or it's been flattened. So we can see all the layers that are in there, but they're all completely cohabiting and wrestling um, within a sort of flatness. And that's the past, the present, the object, um, its referent, the physical and, uh, I guess, phenomenological or philosophical reference that he's making. Everything is kind of pushed together so that it refuses its singular meaning and creates something new. And if we think about also our perceptions, usually of the functions of text and voice narration, we can consider them uh, maybe firstly in terms of authority and credibility. Perhaps sometimes we're more eager to trust language than images. We can also think about how we quite often allow words to construct meaning for us. So even if the text or the voiceover narration doesn't seem related to the image, maybe we let that produce something. It occupies our concentration. So often that allows or kind of gives way to the images as a subliminal text or a kind of secondary text, letting it wash over us while we might be distracted by or concentrating on the words but it also sets us at ease. Um, I think that it's true that even verbal or written poetry is a little easier for us to grasp than perhaps visual poetry. That is obviously a sweeping generalization, but I think in terms of majority of the time, we are more traditionally used to verbal poetry and written poetry. So in The Many Colors of the Sky Radiate Forgetfulness, Basim gives us a short conversation to start off with to the sounds of a waterfall before the more abstract images come in. 
And the conversation kind of sets us at ease because it's an it's a question and it's an asking for an explanation for meaning. So it's doing precisely what I'm saying we shouldn't do tonight. Um, and then once we're relaxed, then it offers us poetry. While birds with stolen feet and broken beaks stare at nothing in particular. So once we're at ease, we can start to understand, as he follows this text with the image of a taxidermied bird, how stasis might be a condition of death. So there is a kind of logic progression. He continues, countless other shadows will touch the leaves in the years to follow. So there's also an invitation here to touch the screen, to touch it with our eyes and to kind of refuse the flatness that the text itself pr proves. So already we have a kind of concept of disproving what film form and film and literary and art theory repeatedly tell us to do. Then we start to see more abstracted ideas on screen and colorful objects that are spinning. And this is a theme that Bassam really returns to. So this colorful object moves faster and faster as we become further and further involved in a kind of kaleidoscopic confusion, which is really where I think Bassam wants us to be. <laughs> um, he shows a stasis as death, but also with a paradox of this constant movement in the background. So we have stillness, but there is always something in his films that is continuously moving, and it might be pointlessly moving, like um, a kind of fairground ride or a you know wheel-spinning toy um, or other circular movements, but there's always something that is returning back into itself. Then I'd like to kind of posit a, a way to think about the sound. So um, the second and third and also the last film in the selection tonight don't have voice or text or, or text narration. Um, and the first two, Crystal Ball and My Father Looks for an Honest City, are films that have non-diegetic sound, so sound that is not in the film world, to create a kind of uncertain tone and an atmosphere of foreboding. We have a periscope that is searching in... And I think that really conjures up and evokes this kind of idea of an endlessness, like piercing sound out into the endless abyss. We also have a storm that is breaking but invisible. And so we hear the lightning that proves the thunder, or the thunder that proves the lightning, but we, never, we can never see what it is proof of. Um, so while light travels faster than sound, um, Magdi's father is based in this natural light and he is shining a light on something that we can't see. So there's kind of like layers of ludicrousness. And I think the, the kind of questions he's asking here is like, can sound prove the existence of something impossible? Um, and that brings us to what that film, My Father Searches for and Looks for an Honest City, is about. And it's about a philosophical stunt. So he's looking for an ideological dimension to a physical place, which is the honest city of the title. Um, so there's a reenactment of a philosophical stunt by the Greek philosopher Diogenes of Sinope, who would carry a lamp around in the daytime, and he would say he was looking for an honest man. And this existential search is both kind of comic and jarring, because while we're enjoying this ludicrous nature of this gesture, the film has a really sinister tone and a weird sense of deja vu. Um, and so we kind of get the sense that maybe even as viewers we might have looked for this before. Is it something that we've maybe looked for all our lives? Um, can we expect to find in the present something from the past, something the past couldn't reveal? If we reenact the past, would we ever get any closer to finding it in the future? And does deja vu serve any kind of purpose? 
So the sound in these films becomes our navigator, guiding us through the images through its tone. In Turtles All the Way Down, uh, which I wrote in the blog post for the Arnolfini also offers us a sense of comfort, and I think this is probably one of the most playful of his films. Um, the central thesis that a woman provides in, again, in, in language in this film is really playful, absurd, and endearing. So the kind of science in this film is turned into speculation, and the certainty of everything becomes about belief. And I think this idea of science, like I said, is something that Basim um, has in his practice, and it also comes out in the themes of his work. So he invites us to enjoy the film and think about the, the truth through the lens of imagination. So that's not to say that the universe is really turtles all the way down, but that it offers an image that we can imagine infinity through. And this is arguably, I mean, one of the most kind of freeing and complex propositions I think an artist can conjure because the truth of infinity is so complicated that even though we can comprehend of the notion of infinity, we can't actually imagine infinity um, because of its endlessness. So it's, it's a kind of paradox in itself. And so having this physical, tangible, known object or this living example of turtles, maybe we take one step closer to imagining the unimaginable. And as if that could be kind of topped as an outcome of art, um, the final film tonight is Time, Laugh, Life, Time Laughs Back at You Like a Sunken Ship. The titles are obfuscating and long, as I said, <laughs> and sometimes tongue twisters. Um, the act we see here is about looking out as inextricably connected to the notion of looking back in. And I think this is, again, really useful for the idea of being in a kind of brine in the auditorium and being pickled by the films. So the reflections are somehow um, kind of tied up with what's literally and figuratively behind us. And time in Basim's work is one of his recurring visual tropes. Like the ocean, um, it's a kind of all-enveloping, endless, infinite turtle, all the way down kind of image. Um, we, we don't see a sunken ship in this film, that's a, not a spoiler, <laughs> um, we see a buoyant one, uh, and it's almost as if this idea itself is also a kind of impossible paradox. So the object is built for one purpose, which is to stay afloat, but it's unable to fulfill that purpose, and yet we are denied the opportunity to see it not being able to fulfill its purpose. So the impossibility is um, so present in Magdi's work but as present as this idea of imagining the unimaginable. And there's always conflict in the work. So he allows us one thing while always questioning another, while offering duality, while coming back to the idea that the artist doesn't speak in an echo chamber and that what he's doing is he's reaching out like the man who desperately tries to tickle heaven. He's hoping someone will feed back to him. Maybe they're from another time, maybe the future. Maybe they're from another physical or ideological place. Or maybe they're feeding back from within themselves somewhere, based on the experience they had when they looked at the work he created. So to return to the intervention in filmmaking, we have the opportunity for a second event, an interaction that denies interpretation. The experience between the viewer and the work is where something happens. It's not the meaning we make from the text, the images, the sound, or even the examination of his work as a collective whole. The experience offers us, this is kind of a 
big thing, but it's almost like a Kantian sublime. And so far as Leotard understood it, that it's beautiful and terrifying, and that you don't know when, how, or or why something will happen, but you have the sense constantly of anticipation. It's like standing on the precipice, almost always afraid to fall in and still wanting to. And that's when we have this really wonderful collapse of restrictive forces like expectation or the limitations of time and space. Susan Sontag wrote that interpretation over effect takes the sensory, spirit, sensory experience of the work for granted. And I think Bassem Magdi knows this, and I think he says it in every single film that he makes. The places may occasionally be recognizable to us, but he re resists having his work understood through the lens of nationhood, through political commentary, through polemic or identity politics. And when I asked him before doing this if there was anything in particular, maybe he, in his absence, that he would like me to say or to think about, um, and, and I thank both him and the Arnolfini for giving me freedom in, in what I decided to say tonight, is that he had no constraints. His only suggestion was that he doesn't, he tries to resist, I guess, having his work read as where he comes from, so as a, an Egyptian or Middle Eastern artist. Um, and, and, and I think what's, what's interesting about that is because it was never one of the things that I thought about or that came to me from his films because the backgrounds and the experiences here are designed to be ambiguous um, and I think that is so that they can belong to the viewer so that they are, they are essentially for you to decide so if we think about spectatorship Maybe spectatorship is this proverbial or titular sunken ship. The refusal of the great history of theoretical approaches to spectatorship. But a knowing and self-reflexive refusal of academic reading while also engaging with academic ideas. So the film presents us with a visual paradox of a floating sunken ship whilst denying discourse. But the screen is not flat, it is flattened. So if we think about the screen as offering us everything of spectatorship, the whole history of spectatorship, it can be all of these things at once. A mirror where we may see ourselves, a window where we may see others, a psychoanalytic subconscious, a phenomenological encounter, a gaze that we might align ourselves with, even if we don't know where we're looking and the alignment asks us if constantly it's forwards, backwards, inside ourselves. Maybe it's a stitched or sutured experience where we can wrap ourselves inside of the films. And only through this kind of strange open device that you will see in the final film where you understand that even wrapping yourself inside of something is paradoxically open. Maybe it's a cognitive response or a process but it kind of refuses that at the same time but it's also embodied and it's sensory so we need to look at the screen as flattened but with a great great depth so deep as the ocean and let it reach out to us so that we might be both tickled and pickled by these very beautiful films from Basim Magdi thank you That's all the films for this evening. Thank you very much for coming along. Um, if anybody wants to chat, we're going to head to the bar. So hopefully see you in there. Thank you. <laughs>